Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I then, what was happening 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is November 1st, 2017, and our guests this week are Steve Bunker from the Friends of Mallows Bay and Carrie Villar, curator for the Ghosts of Mallows Bay exhibit. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, and Joseph Barr Topinka, post commander at American Legion Post 488 in Riverside, Illinois. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer, the chief technologist for the commission and your host. Welcome to the show. Today, we're looking at the war on the water. The Atlantic Ocean was a major factor in the war 100 years ago. It wasn't just a military battleground, but an important strategic pivot. Ships and mastery of the seas has been a key factor in national strength for centuries. Fleets and armadas, the stuff of legends. But the conflict on the seas during World War I is unique and comes down to a life-and-death struggle between the need to move goods, material, and men versus the threat of small, stealthy, and deadly raiders, the U-boats of World War I. Like a small virus that can fell giants, the German U-boats are not just a threat to the ships on the seas, but a deadly noose closing to choke the life out of nations. So, let's jump into our Wayback Machine and head back to 1917 to see how all this lays out and plays out. We've gone back in time 100 years, and we're looking across the waters of the year of 1917. In just the first four months of 1917, U-boat raids reduced the British grain supply to just six weeks by sinking 1,365 ships. The Kaiser's Navy believes that by using unrestricted submarine warfare on all shipping, it can blockade England into surrender, whether the U.S. intervenes in the war or not. They're killing transports faster than replacements can be built, and they know that they're hurting the Brits. A lot. England's imperial economy is hugely dependent on imports of foods and raw materials. And at the current rate of sinking supply lines, it's quite possible that England and then the Allies might lose the war. Not to the millions of poor souls slugging it out in the trenches, but to an effective fleet of just a few hundred submarines. Each typically only 214 feet long, carrying 35 men, 12 torpedoes, mines, and capable of traveling underwater for two hours at a stretch. As America enters the war in April of 1917, the U.S. Navy strategy is not focused on this threat at all. Its strategic focus is on building a power navy headed by giant battlecruisers and dreadnoughts. The Naval Act of 1916 authorizes the building of 10 battleships and 6 battle cruisers, 32,000 and 42,000 ton behemoths sporting massive 16-inch guns. This is a big iron power strategy based on what's known as capital ships, ready to fight in the Atlantic, Caribbean, and Pacific. 
maybe all at the same time, a prophetic vision for a quarter century later. But the real challenge and the task for the U.S. Navy just entering the war is protecting the shipping lanes from the deadly sting of little raiders just under the surface. It's an issue we need to address, not just for Britain, but as the only way to move millions of men, equipment, and supplies across the Atlantic in order to join the fight. This is made very clear to Rear Admiral William Sims. He's the president of the Naval War College and goes to Britain on the eve of America's entry into the war to meet with the British Admiralty about strategy. In point of fact, the ship he travels to England on, the American Line's New York, is damaged by a submarine-laid mine as it approaches Liverpool. The Admiralty pleads its case and makes clear that it is implementing a convoy system, something the U.S. Naval Command doesn't believe in. This strategy requires a lot of smaller ships, primarily destroyers, to work as escorts. The British campaign for the U.S. to refocus its shipbuilding on ships suited to the task of convoying. Sims, who's subsequently named the commander of U.S. naval forces in European waters, cables Washington with his recommendation that the maximum number of American destroyers be made available and immediately. He argues that the timely arrival of even a small number of escorts at this critical moment may have an immediate and strategically important impact on the war, and right now, given the fact that it's going to take some time for the U.S. to mobilize enough military land resources to have any other critical actual impact. There's pushback on this from Admiral William Benson, Chief of Naval Operations, and Secretary of the Navy Josephus Daniels, who argue for putting more emphasis on armed merchant ships sailing independently with Navy-patrolled sea lanes. However, Sims' advocacy and additional diplomatic admiralty visits to Washington succeeds in getting 28 American destroyers escorting convoys by the end of June and 35 by the end of August 1917, rather than the Navy simply conducting patrols, as it had originally planned. Well, it turns out that the convoy system works, and works well. The positive results bring the Americans around, especially Admiral Benson who reportedly goes to the mat with the American Naval Building Authorities. This ties into what we told you about in episode 28, when the headlines read, On Friday, July 18, 1917, President Woodrow Wilson announces in the official bulletin that, Because of the varied contracts for shipbuilding, the yards cannot carry out our program without the help of the government. It has therefore been decided that the shipbuilding industry of the nation shall be federalized. The administration appoints the United States Shipping Board Emergency Fleet Corporation to run the show. Three days later, on the 21st of July, 1917, Secretary Daniels orders the construction of new battleships to cease. Priority is to be given to destroyers and other anti-submarine craft. He authorizes the construction of what would eventually total 266 new destroyers. There's now a huge push for shipbuilding in the United States, with many built so fast and maybe so shoddy that over 200 of them, having served their purpose, were scuttled and sunk right after the war. Which leads us into our next story. We're going to slide into the present for a moment to talk about the ghost fleet of Mallows Bay, a small bay on the Maryland side of the Potomac River in Charles County, Maryland. 
It's considered the largest shipwreck graveyard in the Western Hemisphere, and now is being advocated for and being considered by NOAA to become one of the most interesting national marine sanctuaries in the United States. With us here today in 2017 are Steve Bunker from the Friends of Mallows Bay and Carrie Villar, who served as the interim director of Woodrow Wilson House in Washington, D.C., a National Trust for Historic Preservation historic site. And Carrie is also the curator for the Ghosts of Mallows Bay exhibit. Welcome to both of you. Hey, Terry. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Steve, can you tell us a bit about how and why and who sunk all of those ships in Mallows Bay? There's a number of different ships in Mallows Bay. There's everything ranging from a pre-revolutionary era long boat all the way to a modern ferry boat sunk at Mallow Bay. But the majority of the boats there are World War I-era cargo ships. And why they're in Mallows Bay is interesting World War I history. The shipping board was created to build an emergency fleet to transport men and supplies over to Europe. The goal was to build 1,000 ships in 18 months. This was going to become Persian's bridge to France to carry cargo and supplies and troops over to Europe. They started a massive shipbuilding effort, uh, 40 shipyards in 17 states were to build these vessels. They decided to the most of the vessels would be made of wood because wood was cheap and the ships could be built quicker. And they also decided these ships would be fired by coal, so there were steamships. This was in a period when most ships were uh, turning to, to steel and also were uh, diesel-powered, but it was the, the most expedient thing to do at that time. Only about 100 of these ships were actually built before the war ended, and because there were existing contracts and some ships were already in construction, they ended up building about 300 of these ships. But not long after they were built, they were really obsolete. Some of them did serve in coastal trade during the war and after the war. But within um, a certain amount of time, they were all obsolete. So the fleet of 233 ships was sold to Western Marine and Salvage Company in 1922, they moored these ships originally in the James River, and then they moved it over to the Potomac in an area called Widewater across from Mallows Bay. They would bring them up to Alexandria and do the heavy salvage of these ships in Alexandria, where they would remove the engine and the drive shaft and so forth. And then they would bring them back to Widewater. This went on for quite a while, and then there were some problems with where the ships were being moored. They would drift off and go down up and down the Potomac River and so they ended up buying a parcel of land in Charles County across from Wildwater called Mallows Bay, and they moved 170 ships over there. And the salvage operation continued until about 1931 when the Western Marine and Salvage Company went bankrupt. There were two other salvage operations. And between 1931 and 1940, during the Depression, there was a bunch of wildcat salvaging where people would actually take metal and try to sell it for money. And then in the early 40s, Bethlehem Steel was asked to salvage more steel out of these ships because it was a need for steel during World War II. And that salvage ended up in 1943. The result was that a lot of these hulks after salvage were left in Mallows Bay. And so now we have about 120 ships in Mallows Bay of different vintages, but over about 100 of them are ships from, um, from World War I. Well, since I've learned about it, Mallows Bay is on my list of places I want to go see. What's the visitor experience like? Well, up until about um, five years ago, the site was relatively inaccessible. The 
shoreline was owned by private individuals, and there was very little access to the river. But 15 years ago, the state bought a parcel right next to Malibu Bay, and then five years ago, they signed a contract with the county, and the county created a nice park there. It's called the Mallows Bay Park. It's part of the Charles County Park System. They have a, a nice dock, boat launch. They have a kayak launch. They have an observation area where you can sit with a telescope and you can look at uh, the wrecks. Now, the best way to see the wrecks is to get out in a kayak or a small boat and paddle among the wrecks. And there are a number of kayak companies that are starting to offer trips to Mallows. REI, which is the um, outdoor equipment company, has trips as well as the Smithsonian. And then Atlantic Kayak Company has trips as well. And the county is actually contracted with Atlantic Kayak, and then you can sign up for kayak trips out to the to Mallows Bay through the county during the summer. During the summer, spring, and fall, it's beautiful out there, and you can get a good look at all the ships by, by kayak or small boat. The Woodrow Wilson House just opened an exhibit on this, and with us is Carrie Villar, the curator for the exhibit. Carrie. How and why did Woodrow Wilson House get involved in this? Well, the Woodrow Wilson House, as a site of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, is always looking for ways to work with the National Trust and part as part of the larger organization. And when we heard that the National Trust was going to be naming the Ghost Fleet of Mallows Bay as one of its national treasures, we thought it would be a perfect opportunity to have an exhibit at the house uh, because of the Ghost Fleet is so connected with World War I and Woodrow Wilson that it was a perfect fit both for the Wilson House as well as the National Trust. Carrie, can you tell us more about the opening? Sure. The exhibit is in the exhibition gallery of the Wilson House, which is on the first floor, and it features images and original posters from World War I from the Emergency Fleet Corporation, as well as images of the current modern-day Mallows Bay. So it's a, it's a then-and-now uh, look at the ghost fleet. And last week, we had a very successful opening of the exhibit where we had about 200 uh, friends of the Wilson House, partners that we're working with on the Mallows Bay project, and just friends of the, the National Trust and the general public who all came and celebrated the exhibit and uh, were there for the official announcement by the National Trust that the ghost fleet was being named one of our national treasures. Well, thanks to both of you for coming on the show. That was Steve Bunker from the Friends of Mallows Bay and Carrie Villar, curator for the Ghosts of Mallows Bay exhibit. Follow the link in the podcast notes to learn more. Okay, so whipping back to 100 years ago this week. Boy, are we breaking format today. But we found one more quick story that we just have to slip in. Dateline, October 29, 1917. The headline of the New York Times reads, Names of New Yorkers who have failed to respond to the draft call. 1,490 of draft age ignored summons. Men classed as deserters. Rewards of $50 for each. (laughs) Okay, so this article put out by Roger B. Wood. The director of the draft in New York City lists the names and the addresses of nearly 1,500 young men, known at the time as slackers. That's our speaking World War I word from our early August episode 32. They're naming names, they're giving addresses, and they're offering rewards. And God help any young man with a German-sounding last name. 
But the reason we had to slip in the story and give you the links to the article is because when Catherine Aki, our line, well, okay, let me have Catherine tell you all about it. Yeah, so every week we go through the bulletin and I go through the New York Times from 1917. And when I was flipping through and I came across this article, I thought it was so weird that they would do this. They would list names and addresses and offer rewards for the men that were slacking. And also I I lived in New York for 10 years before I moved to DC. So I I took interest. I started scanning through and it's this amazing cross section of, of New York from a hundred years ago. There's Irish names, Italian names, German names, Japanese names. And, And then I came across a Sam Barry on St. Mark's place. And it is literally the very building where I subletted an apartment for a few months after college. I just couldn't believe it. I thought it was too crazy, Um, but there it was. So anyone out there who's spent some significant time in New York, take a look. You may be in the same building as a slacker from 100 years ago. That's a great story. And the very important link to the article is in the podcast notes. And that brings us to the Great War Project blog. Today, conflict in the Middle East is a near-daily news topic. Places like Palestine, Gaza, and a homeland for the Jews, later to be called Israel, appear regularly in our news, as they did a hundred years ago. The war that changed the world is connected to the roots of many of our modern conflicts. And here to tell us one of the stories is Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Hi, Mike. Hi, Teo, and thanks. Here are the headlines for this week from the Great War Project. The Struggle for Palestine, a British letter to change the world, a Jewish national home designed to keep the Russians in the war. What about the Arabs? And this is special to the Great War Project. Now, a development in the Middle East that could change the world. On November 2nd, a century ago, Britain issues what will come to be known as the Balfour Declaration, It is a letter from the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Balfour, to the British Lord Rothschild, the de facto leader of the Jewish community in Britain. It expresses Britain's support for a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. Although the letter has been issued with the purpose of keeping Russia with its considerable Jewish population in the war, the declaration will electrify the Jewish population around the world and especially in Europe, the United States, and Russia. One senior foreign office official wrote at the time, information from every quarter shows the very important role the Jews are now playing in the Russian political situation. Almost every Jew in Russia is a Zionist, and if they can be made to realize that the success of Zionist aspirations depends on the support of the Allies and the expulsion of the Turks from Palestine, then we shall enlist a most powerful element in our favor. The Balfour Declaration comes just as the war for Palestine begins to sharpen, The British have twice attempted to seize Gaza from its southern border with Palestine and twice have failed to dislodge the Ottoman Turks' control there. This time, the British come up with an original scheme and operation that is truly clever. According to historian Martin Gilbert, three weeks before the British planned attack on Gaza, a British soldier rode up to a Turkish guard post, allowed the Turks to chase him, and just as he disappeared from view, dropped a haversack smeared with horse's blood to leave the impression that he had been wounded. Inside the haversack, reports Gilbert, were carefully prepared details, all phony, of the next attack on Gaza, and a letter from the intelligence department advising of the impracticability of an attack on Beersheba, not far away. 
In fact, the main British attack was launched against Beersheba on October 31st, completely deceiving the Turks. The British mount a 40,000-man assault force and capture Beersheba with more than 1,000 Turkish soldiers taken prisoner. The British seize Gaza as well. Among the British forces is a specially recruited contingent of Jewish soldiers attached to the British Royal Fusiliers. As for the Balfour Declaration, it is understood to provide British support for a Jewish state in Palestine, but there's more. Language in the letter that includes protection for the rights of the other communities taken to mean the Arabs living in Palestine. Here's what it reads in part. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. It can certainly be said that these few words have served to fuel conflict in the Middle East for the past 100 years. And that's the story from the Great War Project this week. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. For weekly informative videos about World War I, from a European perspective, we recommend the Great War channel on YouTube. This week, two new episodes focus on the Battle of Caporetto, which we introduced you to last week. The first, the Battle of Malmaison, breakthrough at Caporetto. Next, on the battlefield of Caporetto, exploring the Caporat, a report from the team's trip to Italy. And finally, Strategic Bombing on the Western Front. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. We've moved forward in time to the present. Welcome to World War I Centennial News Now. This part of the program is not about history but about how the centennial of the war that changed the world is being commemorated today. As we continue our countdown to Veterans Day, let's take a moment to look back at its origin and the variations of it around the world. Veterans Day originated as Armistice Day, first celebrated on November 11, 1919, the first anniversary of the end of the fighting during World War I. It became a national holiday in 1938, and in 1954, President Eisenhower officially changed the name to Veterans Day to incorporate the ideas beyond World War I. Memorial Day, that you probably think of as the start of the summer season, focuses on veterans who paid the ultimate price. While Veterans Day, with its roots as a salute to our doughboys, is a tribute to any American veteran, living or dead, it's our national salute to service. Great Britain, France, Australia, and Canada also commemorate the veterans of World War I and World War II on or near November 11th. Canada has Remembrance Day, while Britain has Remembrance Sunday. Each country honors its veterans and its armistice of World War I in a slightly different way. France expelled an invader from its territory, and the tenor of its commemoration reflects that. Even the symbols of remembrance differ from place to place. The red poppy of Flanders Field is common in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and America. The French use the blue cornflower, which, like the poppy, continues to grow in lands devastated by war. No matter how our commemorations may differ, citizens from all across the globe will take pause on or around November 11th to remember the sacrifice of the men and the women who served their nation in the military. 
As we count down to Veterans Day, here are some ideas for your participation. You can start on November 9th at 11 a.m. Eastern with the ceremonial groundbreaking for the National World War I Memorial at Pershing Park in Washington, D.C. We're going to be streaming it on Facebook Live. We're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Next, be sure to tag all your related posts and photos on social media using the hashtag Countdown to Veterans Day, and you'll reach the constituency for the holiday. Now, we suggest that you visit the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at www.cc.org events to look for Veterans Day events near you. Many World War I-related organizations have posted events in the National Register. We've picked a few of them to tell you about. In the Big Apple, the famous New York City Veterans Day Parade is the largest Veterans Day event in the nation. The parade takes place every November 11th, rain or shine, with activities commencing at 10 a.m. Over 300 units and tens of thousands of marchers assemble near Madison Square Park, including veterans of all eras, military units, civic and youth groups, businesses, and high school bands from across America. Also in New York City, on Thursday evening, the 9th of November, the annual Flanders Remembers concert will present Distortion, a Hymn to Liberty at the Kaufman Music Center. Commissioned by the government of Flanders, the piece commemorates the centennial of World War I, and the concert will benefit the United War Veterans Council. Also on November 11th, at Arlington National Cemetery, they're going to host their annual Commemoration to Veterans Day. A prelude concert will begin at the Memorial Amphitheater at 10.30 a.m., followed by a wreath-laying ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at 11 a.m. Commemoration ceremonies are being held all over the country, not just in major metros. For example, in Wilberforce, Ohio, the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center is holding a Veterans Day commemoration event where award-winning history teacher and Ohio World War I committee member Paul LaRue will present a program that examines Ohio's African-American World War I soldiers, their service, and their sacrifice. The Minnesota History Center is hosting a lecture on November 11th, where you can learn about the 34th Red Bull Infantry Division, a National Guard division from Minnesota that went over there in World War I. In Louisville, Kentucky, a special World War I commemoration display will be set up with pictures and World War I military artifacts organized in conjunction with the annual Veterans Day program. And finally, in Rutherford, New Jersey, the New Jersey World War I Centennial Committee will hold a Centennial Remembrance Program at the base of their World War I Memorial Column, which was a recent awardee in our 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Program. There'll be remarks by the mayor and dignitaries, a reading of names, a ceremonial 20-foot by 30-foot flag folding, taps, a special exhibition, and the showing of two films, The Lost Battalion and Dear Home Letters from World War I. So check the events register at www.cc.org events. And if your Veterans Day event is not posted in the register, Click the big red button and submit it to get it into the National Archival Register of Veterans Day commemorations that happened during the centennial of the war that changed the world. 
We have a lot of links for you in the podcast notes. And now for our feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore today's words and phrases that are rooted in the war. Looking for things you needed was a near daily activity at the front. Men hunted for supplies and for food, especially when units moved into new territory, where locals may have left some goodies behind or when units were cut off from their supply lines. So a new word for hunting around and scavenging for something grew in popularity during World War I. The word is scrounge. The war threw together a lot of cultures and classes who found themselves in common footing, equalized by the rigors of war. And as a result, they traded ideas, ways, and words. We've introduced words and phrases in this segment that made their way into the English language and slang from French, Romani, Urdu, and German. Scrounge is a slang word that comes from a northern British origin. It's possibly an alteration of scrunge, to search, stealthily, rummage, or pilfer, or scringe, to pry about, or perhaps related to scrooge, to push or jostle, whatever its initial origins. Scrounging something up made its way into common use in the trenches of World War I. See the podcast notes to learn more. Moving on to our 100 Cities, 100 Memorial segment about the $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue and focus on our local World War I memorials. This week, we're profiling the Gold Star Memorial at Guthrie Park in Riverside, Illinois. With us to tell us about the project is Joseph Barr Topinka, Post Commander at American Legion Post 488 in Riverside, Illinois. Welcome, Joe. Thanks, Hale. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. So, Joe, tell us a little bit about the Gold Star Memorial at Guthrie Park. What's its history? Actually, doing this uh, gr the grant application made me learn more and more about this memorial that basically I lived around and didn't even notice most of my life growing up in Riverside. But the memorial started in 1919 when a bunch of school children from the local uh, grammar school, which we believe today is Central School in Riverside, put some trees up to commemorate three fallen military members. One was a Reverend Cooper, a Sergeant Quinn, and a Private Moore. And then a year later, which would have been about 1920, these four stones were put up and three commemorated uh, the three fallen. And one was just a general stone to commemorate all the fallen. But what is interesting is, is that this is back in the, the 20s. And before that, anybody that commemorated things and over the Memorial Day really would have been commemorating people that would have fallen in the Great War, which at that time was not World War I, but was a civil war. So, you know, 100 years makes a big difference in terms of perspective and in terms of the memorial. Joe is one of the first 50 awardees for the 100 Cities 100 Memorials. How has this affected your community? Riverside, understand Riverside is a, a very historic community. It was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted as a prototype of a suburb for the future, uh, basically handling commuters, taking the train into Chicago every day. So it was designed by the same man that designed Central Park. So it's famous, but, you know, Olmsted didn't design the memorial. The memorial has been within the village almost 100 years. And so sometimes people think about Olmsted, but they don't think about the memorial. Here's an opportunity for getting that notoriety out there. And most importantly, and as somebody who's an educator, I really like the idea that it's making the young people in our community actually 
get some type of exposure to World War One and what it really was, you know, a hundred years um, that that affects people's memories. You're talking about what three generations of of people in between. Uh, you forget a lot of things. It's I think a good thing once in a while to recall those things from the past and remember the lessons learned so that we don't repeat them. So what kind of restorative work are you planning to do on the memorial? And how did the American Legion get involved? Well, the American Legion's been involved because we actually contributed one of the large stones, not the four original stones, but one of the, the large stones that has not only the fallen from World War I, but the fallen from World War II. And that stone's been sinking. So you can think that memorial originally started with school children, and then additions were put on, and one of those additions came from the Legion. Our Legion is almost as old as the memorial. Our Legion post was founded, I believe, in 1920. And so it's made a difference for us because I think you know people now realize, hey, you know, we do have this American Legion post, and it does care for veterans, and it does want to get the word out about veterans' issues and also maybe helping the community learn more about what veterans and, and soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines do when they're serving their country. In terms of how we'd like to get things spiffied up or repaired, and that's still a work in progress. But the great thing about that is, is that we've had a lot of collaboration with our village leadership and our village of Riverside community leaders. And I think that's the most critical part because with collaboration, we can pretty much do whatever we think the community really wants. As long as we can work together, we're, we're a success story. At the minimum, we, we get the plaques cleaned. We get the large rock stabilized so it doesn't sink into the ground anymore because that's embarrassing. We want to make it a show place for a community that's always been a show place of Frederick Law Olmsted and the suburban communities of Chicagoland. And I, and I, I guess... The basics are what I hope for, but even more than the basics, I hope we can maybe even add some improvements and maybe make the memorial a nicer place for people to come and visit and maybe share a couple of stories. My ideal would be to see a veteran and a member of a, of a school talking about what the veteran did. What an amazing idealistic concept. I can only hope, but that's kind of where I'm trying to go. Joe, do you have any plans for a rededication? When I first took command of the post last October, my thought was to try to get a rededication by next year, 2018. At least with setting a goal, I, I can get people inspired to move forward. My biggest concern is that we just move forward on making this memorial look and feel the way it should be for the community. As an American Legion post, we need to always be thinking about the community and collaborating with our village leadership because only together as a team can we truly, truly succeed and, and what we ultimately want to do, which is good for the community. Thank you, Joe. That was Joseph Barr Topinka, Post Commander of American Legion Post 488 in Riverside, Illinois. We're going to continue to profile 100 Cities, 100 Memorial Projects, not only the awardees, but also teams that are continuing on into Round 2, which is now open for submissions. So as we talked about last week, if you want to do something for the Doughboys, it's easy. Just take a walk. Look around your town and find your local World War I memorial. I promise it's going to be there, or it was. Look near your county or city courthouse. Check your parks. And if they're old, or even just have an old flagpole, look around your local school buildings. 
find your American Legion or VFW posts, or check for markers at your local cemetery. When you do find your World War I memorial, and if it needs some TLC, please go to www.1cc.org 100memorials to see how you can start the ball rolling to get your memorial and the doughboys that it honors some support. Have a great Veterans Day, and don't forget to wear sunscreen. You can follow the link in the podcast notes. In our international report this week, we head to Paris and the beautiful, iconic Notre Dame. From November 7th to 11th, Notre Dame will be lit up by projection all over the building. The exhibit, called Dame de Coeur, is a tribute to the thousands of Allied soldiers who fought and gave their lives for freedom. The piece is being done by director Bruno Cellier, who's very experienced at projection mapping installations. Each night before the light show, a new film, The American in Paris, the true story of the American Hospital of Paris in World War I, will be screened. The film tells the story of the American Hospital in Paris from its start as a 24-bed facility for the expatriate community of Paris in 1910 to its dramatic expansion to more than 2,000 beds during the First World War. The projection show and film are expected to be seen by over 60,000 people, but there's a chance for you to see the film stateside. The French Embassy in Washington, D.C. is screening the film on November 6th, and there's still tickets available. Follow the link in the podcast notes for details about both events. And a special reminder this week to prepare yourself to fall back to Daylight Standard Time. When you wake up on Monday groggy and annoyed at the seemingly random one-hour shift that we tolerate every year, we've got somebody for you to blame. You can blame the Kaiser. Although some say it was Benjamin Franklin who first proposed the idea, the Germans were among the first to institute daylight savings, and they did so in 1916, just two years into World War I. The concept was meant to be a temporary measure during the war and a way of conserving energy and providing more usable hours of daylight. The British, French, and many others quickly followed suit, and daylight savings remained a staple of wartime life. Most countries dropped it after World War I, and it wasn't until the next World War that daylight savings time made its return in most of Europe and America, too. Read more about the wartime application of daylight savings at the link in the podcast notes. As we move into our articles and posts, this week at www.cc.org news, there's an article courtesy of the North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. It's the story of one North Carolinian who served in the war but never fired a shot. Instead, Wilmington native Charles Mendelssohn served as a cryptographer during the war period, someone who specializes in crypting and decrypting sensitive information. The entirety of his year-long military term was spent stateside at posts in Washington, D.C. and New York City, where Mendelssohn led a team tasked with decrypting intercepted German diplomatic correspondence. Read more about how a professor of ancient language from the City College of New York helped the U.S. read the enemy's mail during World War I by following the link in the podcast notes. And that brings us to the buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what are your picks out of the great stories from social media this week? Hi, Teo. 
We have two really great articles to share today, and we'll start with a heartwarming story from Fort Wayne, Indiana, which we shared on Facebook recently. Last Sunday, 75 trees were escorted by motorcade through Fort Wayne before being planted at Memorial Park. Warrior Breed Motorcycle Club organized the effort and were joined by police, fire, and military personnel along the route. Memorial Park had, according to the article, fallen into a bit of disrepair, and the group was worried it would be repurposed. Eventually, 125 new trees will be planted in Memorial Park, each rededicated to a soldier who gave their life in World War I. Warrior Breed Motorcycle Club President Gary Perkey said, A hundred years ago, there was a committee, I'm sure, discussing Memorial Park and what they were going to do to memorialize these World War I vets. And here we are, a hundred years later, doing the exact same thing, having the same discussions and planting these trees once again. It's a great story about local remembrance of World War I and how moving and impactful it can be to be involved. An official dedication is planned for this November 11th, so if you're in Fort Wayne, check the link in the podcast notes to learn more. Finally this week, we're going to go back to the top of the show with an amazing collection of photos from the Atlantic all about the war at sea during World War I. The Atlantic published a series of 10 collections of photos back in 2014, all on different themes, at the very beginning of the centennial of the war, and they're absolutely wonderful. The War at Sea series includes images of U-boats cresting over waves in the Atlantic, disabled ships in the Dardanelles being blown up, mines being dragged ashore in Heligoland, a delicate-looking Curtis AB-2 plane being catapulted off the deck of a warship, ship cats, and lots and lots of pictures of dazzle camouflage. There's even a page process image from Jaffa, Israel, a super early color photograph, though it's mostly pinks and greens and looks a bit surreal. The page process photos are super beautiful. Check these incredible images out at the link in the podcast notes. And that's it this week for The Buzz. And that's all the stories for you this week on World War I Centennial News. Now, before you flick off your play button, remember, for those of you who listen all the way to the end, we always leave you with a special goodie or two. We want to thank our guests, Steve Bunker and Carrie Villar, telling us the story of the ghosts of Mallows Bay, Mike Schuster and his report of action in the Middle East, Joseph Barr Topinka from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Riverside, Illinois, Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show, Thanks to Eric Marr for his contribution to this episode. Eric has joined our editorial team as a researcher and writer. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. This show is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. with a Facebook live stream of the ceremonial groundbreaking this upcoming Thursday, November 9 at 11 a.m. Eastern. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at ww1cc.org/cn. 
on iTunes and Google Play at WW1 Centennial News, and on Amazon Echo or other Alexa-enabled devices. Just say, Alexa, play WW1 Centennial News Podcast. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thank you for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories you're hearing here today about the war that changed the world. We are the Yankee boys, we're full of Yankee joys, and we love with hearts so cool. The old red, white, and blue, as we will poo you. You bet your bottom dollar, here we stay until we end the fray. We like the hustle and the noise. We'd rather fight than eat, we know we can't be Don't forget, we want you to scrounge around your town to find your local World War I memorials and also to thank a vet for their service this Veterans Day week. So long.